transfer window, as is tradition, has slammed shut. Nobody closes a transfer window gently in football. There were winners and losers, smiles and glares, and abandoned fax machines that wistfully remembered the good old days when they could mischievously jam up and ruin a multi-million pound transfer. I'm Kevin Hatchard, and this is Football Only Better. We are, of course, happy with the squad we have here at Betfair Towers. Mark O'Hare continues to marshal the defence. Mark, we've talked a lot in the last few weeks about the race for the top four and with good reason because there are lots of betting opportunities in such a tight race in the Premier League. If you look at the clubs involved, West Ham didn't really strengthen their fans, seemed quite annoyed about the situation. Arsenal cut ties with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and a few others, but didn't really bring in reinforcements in attack or midfield. Uh, Spurs recruited Dejan Kulusevski and Rodrigo Bensancourt, who I think are going to be really interesting signings for them. But Tongi and Dombele and Deli Ali have left, and Manchester United have loaned out the likes of Anthony Martial, Donny van de Beek and Ahmad Diallo. So, what do we make of all that? Who won? Who lost? Uh, I think you've summarised it perfectly there, Kev. I think Spurs. Okay, are moving the on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think Spurs. Spurs are the winners uh, in terms of the, the race for the top four. Um, completely agree. I think Benton Core is a is a really nice upgrade on the midfield options. I think he's very very much in the mould of Antonio Conte of being aggressive and and comfortable on the ball, with bundles of energy as well. And he'll be an upgrade on the likes of. Skip and Winks, who I know are fans' favourites, but um, you know Benton Cork brings an extra edge and extra quality there. But uh, really excited by Kulusevski. Um, I think there's so much untapped potential there. Someone I talked about a lot actually for Sweden coming into the Euros, and he had a really disrupted um, pre-tournament and, and campaign as well. I, I was surprised he's still only 21, um, but uh, he's a really good character, very versatile, um, and yeah, there's so much untapped potential there. He's tall, powerful can play on the flanks, can play up top, and I think he should settle really well as well. So he's had a few frustrating years in Italy, but um, the opportunity now to, to really flourish is there. And I think Spurs have got themselves some two two really good players there to, to add to what they're already building. Um, we made the, the case for Spurs uh, soon after Conte arrived as, as a big price opportunity to finish in the top four. And if I was betting right now in the top four market, I'd still back Spurs. I know they've got the toughest schedule to play, but um, I think those signings certainly help. Um, Arsenal have the easiest schedule, but... Um, yeah, as you say, they didn't really strengthen. They possibly weakened their hand because the the squad is is certainly weaker in terms of numbers and quality, and um, that depth issue could be a problem uh, when we sort of reach into the springtime. Um, United still have to go to Anfield and the Etihad as well. Didn't strengthen uh, the gaping hole in central midfield as well, so that's an issue. And um, yeah, West Ham didn't do any business. I believe they did try to do some, but um, yeah, you look at depth as well. Sort of lacking in key defensive areas and, and also up top, there's no real support for, for Antonio at the moment. And we keep talking about it, but once uh, the Europa League kicks in in the next couple of weeks, um, you know they're going to be sort of a physically pretty drained coming towards the end of the campaign. So uh, I'll be cheering them on as underdogs, but I think betting-wise, still Spurs. The cerebral number 10 of the side is Betfair trader and tipster Jason Murphy. Jason, I could see you nodding furiously as Mark was talking about Kulusevsky, and I agree with him as well. I think he's a really exciting capture. I want to tell, talk to you about Arsenal first, though, because it seems to me that what Arsenal have done is they've taken a gamble in the sense that they've said, okay, 
we don't want to just bring in players that will only enhance the squad. What we want to do is we want to wait until the end of the season and then try and get players who will enhance the team. So likes maybe of Izek or somebody along those lines. But I guess in a way you should applaud the long-term thinking, but fans won't necessarily see it that way if they finish seventh. Yeah, it's the right approach and I'd agree with it. If, if a player who improves your squad starting 11 is someone that you're going to buy in the summer and you can get them in January, get them in January. Like this thing about January being a panic window, trying to fix things. Not always the case. Like Patrice Evra came to United. I think Vidic might came as well in January. Weren't great, but by the start of next season, they were flying it. So it was the right time to bring them into the club. Now, I have two tips now that the transfer window has closed. One, the top four and one, the relegation. So in terms of the top four, I'm nodding along because if you look at the start of the window, the team's competing for the top four and look at the end of the window. The way things have moved, we've improved Spurs' rating off the back of those two signings. Bentancourt improves that midfield. If you're given a choice of Kulisevsky in your squad over the likes of Lo Celso, Deli Ali, Brian Gill and Dombele, very happy with that and given the manager that they have. So we reckon Tottenham now 100% price, run the ratings through the same. Arsenal a little bit worse, Man United arguably a little bit worse in terms of their option. Arsenal in particular as well, if Lacazette gets injured, that's that's the gamble they've taken. We reckon Spurs 100% price, you'd be looking at about 6-4 to four to get into the top four. There's much bigger out there now, particularly still on the exchange, just shorter than 2-1 to one, you can back on the exchange. Uh, so they've, they've definitely won it prior to the window. That Spurs price, we probably would have had it about 15 to 8. So given that Spurs are strengthened, the other team's not so strong. Definitely, I think Tottenham for top four at those prices is a great bet. In terms of the relegation battle then, Jason, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because you look at Burnley, for example. West Ham needs a striker. Wout Weghorst available for you know not that much money in the grand scheme of things. Burnley have swooped and West Ham haven't. And the way that... Veghorst goes about his business, he's aggressive, he's a goal scorer. If you wanted to draw up a striker for Sean Dyche, he's who you'd come up with, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And we actually have Burnley rated slightly better at the end of the window than we did at the start. So it's it's worked out well for them in terms of playing squad. Obviously, when we're compiling ratings, we don't need to worry about the numbers, the figures, the books, how much you're paying to get in or what you're getting out. Like it's For us, it's not about balancing the book. It's what is the playing squad between now and the end of the season. Um, a question I always put to people when we're trying to adjust our ratings is like, who's the better footballer, Luis Diaz or Dan Burns? <laughs> I think you'd say Luis Diaz, but it depends what you need. Exactly, I guess. exactly. So in terms of improving the rating, do you improve Liverpool or Newcastle? Who do you improve more off the back of those two signings? I would think Newcastle, given what Liverpool already have. Exactly. So Luis Diaz arguably the better footballer I'd rather play a five aside with him wouldn't like to be going up with Dan Byrne to win a header but Luis Diaz he could be <laughs> turn out to be the best player in the Premier League next couple of years but for the, this couple of months towards the end of the season we'd improve Newcastle's rating more than Liverpool off the back of those two signings now if you look at the business that Newcastle have done the five signings they've made are five signings that go into their starting 11 and improve them but how much do you improve them we've Reckon about a quarter of a goal, accounting for the fact that it's still Eddie Howe, the manager, who we're not mad about. Yeah, takes time to gel. Some of these players haven't played in the Premier League, some of them have and are proven. So, if you look at Newcastle's position in the table and you say, in terms of ratings, before they got the money, they were like one of the worst teams in the league. Even now, with the money and these five signings, 
if you rate Newcastle as the 15th best team in the league and you're running your simulations, they're still only even money to stay up. So when you're looking at prices on Newcastle of 64 to get relegated, you'd have to make them about the 12th best team in the league. So we, we can't see that happening. Even if Eddie Howe gets it right in the gel really quick, is there seven or eight teams still worse than Newcastle in the league? I don't think so. It's a gamble still. And for me, Newcastle relegation, I'd still be chipping away at that because you can spend the money, but there's no guarantees that it's going to work on the pitch. So we've got our defensive screen. We've got our number 10. We need a dashing young wing wizard, I think. So we brought in in for goals, Jake Osgathorpe. Jake, it's really interesting what Jason says there because you look at this Newcastle team. I happen to think, Bruno Guimaraes will be one of the best signings of the window. But Jason's right. He's not proven in the Premier League. I think the physical profile he has, I think the intelligence he has will mean that he does hit the ground running. But there have been other big developments elsewhere because it's not just about players. Watford have made a decision to part company with Claudio Ranieri and have brought in Roy Hodgson. I would think he would be a massive bonus for the football club because he's been there and done it. Uh, you'd, you'd think so, yeah. Um, and to be honest, most people would suggest that he'd be a little bit of an upgrade and they might have a better chance of staying up with Hodgson rather than Ranieri, um, you know, based on his track record more than anything else. But just looking at the XG figures, I know he wasn't really, wasn't given much help at Crystal Palace in terms of budget um, or, you know, being, being able to bring in fresh players as Patrick Vieira has. But I do think it is a little bit concerning when you look back over the Pre, his, his last two years at Crystal Palace where you could argue he had a marginally better squad than what he currently has at Watford and they were producing some really worrying expected goal numbers to the point where they should have been relegated in both seasons uh, of his final two in charge um, that for me is a, is a big worry they were conceding loads of chances um, in, in those two seasons around 1.7 expected goals against per game he's taken over a Watford team who under Ranieri were allowing over two expected goals against per game over the season they've allowed around 1.85 expected goals against per game so consistently bad defensively um, so if, you know, if anything if there's anything to go by from what Hodgson was doing at Crystal Palace to what Watford are doing and then you marry the two together I'm not too sure it's a, it's a fantastic fit um, I think the reason that, that Crystal Palace were so poor from a number standpoint under Hodgson was the style of play because they were sitting back playing deep allowing a lot of shots on their goal a lot of chances to be created and then trying to hit on the counter-attack um, I think he got away with that at times due to some individual performances, the likes of Vicente Guaita, who overperformed his post-shot expected goals quite considerably over those two years. Um, I'm not sure if he's going to have that help at Watford. Um, so I'm still a little quite concerned about Watford and their chances of, of survival. Um, you know, the, the main man, Ishmael Assar, uh, I know it's been Emmanuel Dennis who's been getting all the praise and the credit, but Ishmael Assar really is the man that makes that tick. He's not going to be there for the game at the weekend, which is a, a massive clash at Turf Moor. Um, and, and, you know, I, I am still a little bit concerned about Watford when it comes to the relegation. Um, and, and, you know, as you said there, about Weghorst, I mean, I just I was gobsmacked at the, the fact that Burnley managed to get that over the line with the fee. Because, as you said, I mean, the £25 million they got for Wood, spent 12, a report of 12 on Weghorst, so less than half the fee. He's a couple of inches taller, which is bound to please Sean Dyche. And he's, he's younger than Chris Wood with a, a better XG process over the last four seasons. So... I think he's a better all. player. Oh, he personally. is. Personally, I he's, do think he's a better player. Absolutely, he's a better player, um, and yeah, you know, he's, he's a massive upgrade. And they've saved themselves, you know, thirteen million quid in the process of doing that deal. So, really, really 
it, potentially a really important signing for Burnley and then you, you factor in that they get Maxwell Cornet back for this game as well at the weekend which uh, could also be huge and, and what looks like a massive game on paper with fair few question marks how will Wego settle will, what will Watford look like under Roy Hodgson um, you know, it's going to be a really intriguing game that one Let's talk about that one then, Jake, because it is massive, the Sean Dyche derby between Burnley <laughs> and Watford. Now, Burnley here, 2.34 to pick up the win. Watford, the 3.6 outsiders. How are you looking at this one in terms of how better should approach it? I'm all about the home win in this. Um, I, I, I really am. I think that Burnley, they went to Arsenal the last Premier League game, did a really good job of limiting Arsenal to very few chances created. And, and that is that was away from Turf Moor. And generally this season, they've been really, really bad on the travels. I think they failed to win in 11 away matches. But that was a really promising performance. Um, they were limited in terms of you know the players that they had from forward areas. They've got a couple back, as I've said. Cornet's coming back, who's you know really been their main man. Um, the, if, if Weghorst is fit and ready to go, I think that... He'll make a massive impact in this game because you know you've got the likes of Cornet and McNeil who are really, really, you know, really good wingers that can put really good balls into the box. McNeil in particular, uh, and we know that Weghorst is, is excellent in the air um, at Turf Moor. While the results haven't really stood up for, for Burnley, their XG process has. They're, they've been generating around 1.5 expected goals for per game, allowing just 1.2. So, from a process standpoint, they should have more wins on the board than they actually do. Um, the big sort of joker in the pack is what will Watford look like under Hodgson uh, will they sort of use the attacking flair that they have there to play on the front foot and really take the game to Burnley or will they I doubt to... it <laughs> yeah yeah given he... what you've said I mean it's interesting because I I do happen to think Hodgson and I'll ask the guys about this as well because I'm intrigued as to what they think with Hodgson, I completely understand why his style of play would lead to a bad XG process. I get that entirely. But I think he has made a career of being able to do just enough. And that's not to criticise him at all. I think that's actually a good thing. He knows how to eke out these wins. And there comes a point where you think, well, the figures aren't great. But he does. the track record suggests he can do it. So... I'm really torn because I think players like Saar and Emmanuel Dennis, even though I think he's he's really hit and miss, actually, personally, I think. Uh, but they do have pace at the top of the pitch. They do, yeah, and that should suit their style of play. But I don't think Burnley will get sucked into that, really. Um, I think this is it's going to be a very... Well, it's a relegation six-pointer, isn't it? And usually they are very tight, dull affairs uh, that are sort of settled by one goal, usually from a set piece. Um, and, I, and I definitely would fancy Burnley's chances more, but... Just the fact that defensively Watford have been so open, so poor. Um, I think individually they're really poor defenders that they have at the, at the club. So for Hodgson, he's going to have to go in there and he's going to have to play a system that's going to try and tighten things up. But it might get to the point later on in the season where they have to open up and, and really go for games if they see, find themselves falling behind the relegation pack. And then that would be interesting to see what, what kind of approach he would take. Because at Palace, he, had, he didn't really get into that kind of the Meyer, if you like, in terms of they were always mid-table, they were always overperforming their expected goals data, um, performing better than what they should have, getting results that they perhaps shouldn't have. Um, but in this game in particular, I just think that Burnley will have a little bit too much for them. Uh, and I think the price around them to win at 2.34 looks a little bit too big for me. And, and I'm happy to sort of get to Burnley onside, particularly at Turf Moor. 
Jason, I'm really interested in this Hodgson thing because I was thinking the other day, I think it's, I can't remember which anniversary it is, but it's, recently it was the anniversary of that incredible Fulham run uh, to the Europa League final where they knocked out Juventus. It was just ridiculous, quite frankly. It's an amazing achievement to have done what they did. And he's been England boss. I know that was mixed at best, but he has been he has been the manager of his country. I think he's done some terrific work organising clubs like Fulham, like West Brom, like Watford, like Palace rather. Maybe Watford. We'll find out. But this XG versus what we actually see, that's going to be a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because I wonder if the way he plays feeds into a bad XG process. If that makes sense. It does make sense, yeah. Um, XG is a very good metric, but it's only one metric of judging judging a team. And we have seen historically teams that, you know, the process doesn't match up with XG. And we know from watching the games, the eye test reasons why that might be. So, you know, Atletico Madrid is always a classic example, 10 to perform yeah. XG a bit because of just how they set up and how they approach games, particularly when they go ahead. Um so Roy Hodgson, like in Roy we trust and Watford fans should trust in him. But as things stand, Burnley, Norwich and Watford are the three teams that are most likely to go down. So if they go down, you know, it was always on the cards. But it is a positive change going from, I, I don't know if Stinch has been on recently to talk about Ranieri, but if he hasn't, I'm sure he'll, he'll have a, a word to say about when he is back. But Hodgson coming on in instead of Ranieri has to be seen as a positive. And his track record speaks for himself and... Um, maybe his rose tinted glasses, but that Fulham team, from memory, were quite attacking as well. You'd have to be an attacking yeah. team or have a different process and approach to, like you say, go on European Cup runs like that. Um, whereas the job he did at Palace, I think Palace fans would, you know, they were frustrated by the end, but given the squad that he had and what he could work with, what he did was excellent. Now, Patrick Vieira has come in, he's changed the process. And arguably, with the signings he's made, Conor Gallagher up top, he's more attacking options. He has changed the style of play, but he has a slightly better squad than Hodgson had when yeah. he was finishing at Palace. So it's very, very hard to judge managers, and you always have to judge them on the context of where they are and what, they've, what they were given to work with. And more often than not, Hodgson throughout his career, all the way back to, I think, Inter Milan, Switzerland, like he's he's delivered more or less bar, maybe Liverpool in, in England, probably the two little blots, there could be question marks. But like I say, in Roy, we trust and the Watford board are right to bring him in and the fans should get behind him and see, see what happens. Yeah, Mark, it does feel like a positive change, doesn't it? Because... Hodgson's been around for so long, you kind of forget all of the, the stuff Jason's just mentioned. You know, Switzerland, he was at Inter, he did a terrific job in Scandinavia starting out, which was, in a, you know, winning titles and what have you. So, I mean, this is a, a top coach, really, who's very, very highly respected. Absolutely. I think he'll be a, a real asset to Watford. Um, I think sort of hindsight's wonderful, but I think we were all in agreement that Ranieri was a, a puzzling appointment at the time, uh, which is I kind of in, in line with Watford, what, with what Watford do with coaches. But uh, I think this is a, a strangely quite sensible appointment from them to, to galvanise them. I thought throughout Ranieri's reign, they just um, they looked ragged, they looked directionless. And I think uh, Hodgson will absolutely sort of stiffen them up, make them much more difficult to beat, a bit more compact and competitive. Uh, and as we talked about, they do have quality in forward areas. So when um, 
Saar comes back from the African Cup of Nations. News this week that he's fit and available for, for his nation this weekend. So uh, that'll be a positive change. I know Emmanuel Dennis is suspended for, for the match at Turf Moor, which is a, a real blow and obviously feeds into what Jake's talking about for, for Burnley as, as a bet there at a decent price. But um, yeah, I think in the long term, for sure, uh, I think Watford will be better for having Hodgson. But I also think Burnley have improved and so have Newcastle too. So fascinating scrap between three of the bottom four now to survive. Now, we know it's frustrating when you get frozen out of a bet, so Betfair's offering no cash-out suspensions on match odds over, under and goal markets on the sportsbook, even during VAR reviews or when there's a penalty. Let's switch our attention to the fourth round of the FA Cup, then lots of ties this weekend. Jason, I must admit, as a tipster, I do find cup games a little bit more tricky sometimes than league matches. What challenges do you think there are when you're trying to price these games up and when we're trying to tip them? Yeah, there's a lot of challenges. Um, I'll touch on three things. I'll touch on two things now. How, how do you rate between different leagues and then also the importance of team news and then maybe later in the pod we can pick up a few outright bets. So in terms of trying to compare the difference between the leagues, what I did was I looked at all the FA Cup games in the third, fourth and fifth round since 2016, had a look at closing prices and bucketed each team into either Premier League, Championship League 1, League 2 or non-league at the time of the match. And when you work through those closing prices, what you'd find on average is that a Premier League team, the average Premier League team against the average Championship team is about rated 1.1 of a goal better. So at a neutral venue, they're going off about 8 to 13. And then if you compare the average Premier League team set to an average League 2 team, then that 1.1 almost doubles and you see them going off instead of 8 to 13, about 1 to 5 against the League 2 team now that all makes sense if you ask anyone that follows football follows betting those are the kind of prices that they'd be giving you but it's a starting point so we now can say for the, this round of the cup coming up if we have this Premier League team and we have this Championship team or this Championship team League One team this is the average difference between the average team and the leagues and then we tweak it so what could we look at if we look at say Stoke against Wigan this weekend so Stoke are at home and Stoke at the moment are about 10 to 11 to lay on the exchange now, if we look at the gaps between all the leagues, the smallest gap we actually seen from that very small sample size, only about 360 games, was between Championship and League One, which was about 0.3 of a goal. The average Championship team versus the average League One team, about 0.3 of a goal worse, which sounds quite small. But again, if you ask anyone familiar with the football pyramid, probably makes sense. The gap between Premier League and Championship is getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. Uh, League Two to League One there's probably just a different in terms of approach size of clubs coming down the ladder that are still in league one that makes that gap a bit bigger. So 0.3 of a goal is between the average teams is, is quite tight. So Stoke are home. We'll give them a bit of home advantage, say a quarter of a goal. So you now have Stoke at 0.55. If you say they're an average team for championship and Wigan are average team for league one. Stoke arguably maybe an average team, but Wigan are definitely above average for the league one standard. Now the price that will come back to Stoke to lay at 10 to 11 it's given them about 0.75 of a goal more. Now, the numbers we just talked about was about 0.55. So, essentially, there's 0.2 of a goal difference. A lot of numbers I'm throwing here at you, but essentially, using that very rough metric without getting into the details of the teams, that 10 to 11 essentially should be about 11 to 10. So, you could actually lay a 10 to 11 shot there. That would be 11 to 10. Now, you obviously have to look into the details as well. Look at what they did in the previous rounds. Wigan in the previous round, um, James McLean was on the bench to rotate their keeper, otherwise went fairly full strength. Whereas Stoke, they made a lot of rotations, second-choice wing-backs. But us traders, we can't cover all leagues, so we have 
play, uh, traders that are closer to particular leagues. So you go and you get that information where you can. And actually, in the last round, Stoke had a couple of injuries at the time. So maybe, you know, the manager wanted to go full strength. He just couldn't because of injuries. So team news is a big factor. But purely based on those figures there now, I'd already be inclined or looking to side at laying Stoke at 10 to 11. I'd have to find a reason not to lay Stoke at 10 to 11 as it stands. But you need to do your due diligence on team news, which is um, probably another another different bit to touch on as well. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing because those gaps you're talking about between the actual price and what you think maybe it should be, that's what we're always telling betters to look for, isn't it? That's that's the show, effectively. We're effectively saying <laughs> to people where the value is, where the gaps are. That's it. Not every bet's going to be a winner, but if you're on at the right price on enough bets, enough time, eventually in the long run, you will make money. But... um, Like I say, it's all about entertainment purposes as well. Like, you know... You, you can have a bet purely for entertainment if you're sitting down to watch a match as well. It's the televised game. It's on BBC. You want to do a bet builder. You know, there's the entertainment aspect to it. But if you're trying to make a profit from this over a period of time, then not every bet's going to be a winner. But you need to be on enough bets at the right price and have the bit of luck that you get the results to go with it. Um, in terms of the team news, there's a very good example, actually, from the last round, which was West Brom at home to Brighton. Um a Twitter tipster put up a tip saying Brighton 5-4, to four, it's going to short and it's going to go odds on. I didn't see it, it was sent on to me and I was asked about it. And my, my default position on FA Cup third round is I tend to avoid because with Premier League, you can have almost certainty about what the starting 11s are going to be. There might be one or two at most unexpected changes. If there's more than that when team news comes out, then I tend to maybe leave alone. Um just because, you know, two or three changes in the team completely changes dynamic, how teams, relationships, like, you know, if you're playing in that Chelsea team, when Jorginho gets the ball, you're gone already. Samuel Leto used yeah. to do it in Barcelona. So when you have two, three, four changes, that kind of goes out of it. So the the rationale, I agreed with the rationale in terms of Brighton were 5-4 to four going away to West Brom. West Brom, in their previous cup games, in the League Cup against Arsenal, got trashed 6-0 and they put out a load of kids. The person that tipped it up did their due diligence, spoke to actually West Brom journalists. Everyone was of the same opinion. And this tipster actually said every man and his dog expected West Brom to play the kids. So, the so even the dogs price, were involved. Even the dogs were on it, yeah. So <laughs> it, that Brighton price should have shortened. Now, when I looked at it and I heard the two things that sprung to mind was the context of that Arsenal League Cup game when they played the kids. That was sandwiched between two league games. Whereas this game... FA Cup game against Brighton. They didn't have another game for eight days and they actually had a couple of postponements due to COVID. So I think when a team has had postponements due to COVID, there's an issue where you need players actually to be sharp and you need to play your best players to get match fitness so that when that league game does come up, it's not that they're rested, it's actually that they're sharp because they've played. Um, So I thought that was very important in terms of the context of it. Um, And you just don't know what a manager's going to think. Like, Now, the tipster could be right, it was probably worth a risk. The price didn't go. It, it, he tipped up five to four. The shortest it went was about, I think it went to 11 to 10, touched 11 to 10. But come kick off, that Brighton five to four was actually about 13 to eight because the West Brom manager, Val, he's gone now, obviously. But he, he picked, fortunately, his strongest team that he could. So it just goes to team news. Even if the man and his dog and the journalists all think we know what the starting 11 is going to be for a cup game, you can always get thrown by it now. The tipster would actually argue that it was worth the risk based on the information available at the time, and that's a fair argument. But the context of 
the Arsenal game, I think, probably gave too much weight to it, given that that was sandwiched between two league games, whereas Val needed to get his players sharp and didn't have another game for eight days. So, yeah, team news is... Any tips were giving me this weekend for the Cup, you know, there is always with that, that serious asterisk of team news dependent. These are always the things you have to bear in mind. We will come back uh, to the Cup and we will come back to English football. But let's start our tour of Europe. Uh, we're going to go to Germany. Massive game between the league leaders and the champions Bayern and a resurgent RB Leipzig. Domenico Tedesco uh, starting to work his own curious brand of magic uh, over in the east of Germany. Uh, Marco Hare, what's the value here? Because this is a really interesting one. The last team to stop Bayern scoring in the Bundesliga was actually Leipzig and they do look a bit more organised than they have been under Jesse Marsh earlier this season. Yes, they have. They've improved and they're making steps in the right direction for sure. But uh, ultimately, it comes down to how good are Bayern compared to the rest. And I still think there's a massive, massive chasm between the champions and the best of the rest, um, you know, vying between Dortmund and Leipzig there. But um, yeah, Bayern won't be far off their best 11 on Saturday. Um, I think Alfonso Davies is probably the only sort of starter definitely missing. So I'd expect a, a strong 11 and a strong showing in this match. Um, I think no matter how we try and present it, uh, they are clearly and comfortably the best team in the league. Uh, and they won 4-1 in the reverse fixture, didn't they? They won yeah, the yeah. with them in the other game. Absolutely demolished them. And I think if you look just at XG, um, they're averaging two expected goals more than their opponents in the Bundesliga on a per-game basis, which is kind of outrageous, really, generating just shy of three expected goals per game. And as you say, we've seen the matches against the big teams in the Bundesliga, uh, scored four or five goals against Leipzig, Leverkusen, Union, Kern, and three against Dortmund as well. So I don't think there's any real way in which I see Leipzig stopping that kind of goal-scoring juggernaut. It's just whether in which they can kind of make their own mark on this match, which I think they can, in fairness, and that's why... I think I'll happily boost the price on Bayern to win by including both teams to score at 6-4, 2.5. I think that's a really nice price considering both teams have scored in 65% of Bayern's games this season, including 8 of 10 against the top 10 in the division. So when they do play the elite teams in the league, they do tend to give you opportunities. The high line, which we talk about many times, often does get exposed. And you look at Leipzig, Nkuku, uh, Schoboslai and Andre Silva, three very, very capable players. Um who are able to score, you know, in transitions from set pieces uh, and just Silva's clinical nature in, in the box as well. So I think in those counter-attacks and those transitions and those dead pool situations, they will get their chances to get on the score sheet. They are second in the Bundesliga for expected goals and chances created. And they're also very close to Dortmund in a range of other metrics too. So, yeah, they did start slowly. They're starting to find their form a little bit. And uh, I still think they've still got a bit to find too. But um, trending in the right direction, I do expect them to get on the score sheet, but ultimately lose. So Mark backing Bayern to win and both teams to score. And our fantastic multiples offer is running every day. Bet £20 on multiples or bet builders and receive a £5 free bet to use on multiples or bet builders. T's and C's apply. Let's go to Italy. Fiorentina begin life after Dusan Vlaovic with a home game against Lazio. Jake, this feels like a game despite Vlaovic's absence uh, that could have goals in it. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, both teams are scoring over two and a half. Um, as a bet builder just jumped out to me straight away it's around 1.8 on the sports book it's quite a big game actually um, currently sits 7th and 8th respectively these two teams are both just 7 points off the top 4 um, you know Fiorentina they've actually been one of the better teams this season based on XG process Lazio um, actually been quite disappointing uh, particularly at home though Fiorentina have really excelled they've averaged over 2.1 expected goals for per game which is a staggering amount um, 
and you couple that with the fact that they've allowed 0.92 expected goals against per game shows that they've been really dominant uh, at home but also the fact that they are conceding a few chances along with the sort of bucket load that they're creating um, both teams to scores landed in 60% of their home games over two and a half landed in all of their home games Lazio away from home um, their, their XG process has been a little bit concerning they're actually negative uh, in terms of XG um, generating just 1.04 expected goals for per game allowing 1.45 so they're actually getting out created by their opponents when on the road quite consistently um, but been very entertaining to follow both teams to score in 67% of away matches uh, over two and a half in 83% of away matches so this has got all the recipe for, for goals a very goal laden game um, and the best way to do that I feel is both teams to score and over two and a half goals Mark, and you know you had a view on this one. Is it the same view, pretty much? Pretty much, yeah. I was I was heading to the exchange because over two and a half goals um, was one point eight. It's been clipped into one seventy five, but um, I think just gives you a little bit slightly more insurance on on the both teams to score aspect. Obviously disappointed that Vlajevic has left, but I don't think that's going to change massively in terms of how Fiorentina set up. They certainly recruited pretty well in January. Uh, Jonathan Okone was already in the club. Before Vlajevic left, they've also got Piontek and Artur Cabral as well. So uh, interesting couple of gambles there, which will help sort of solidify their, their final third options. But uh, yeah, as Jake says, at home in Florence, they've been exceptional. Exclude the top two. They've won seven from eight unbeaten games, scored twice or more in all eight of those, and three of those, three goals or more in six of those two. So really impressive stuff. Uh, their head coach, uh, Vincenzo Italiano, certainly prefers his team to play fluent attacking football, uh, very much in line with the, the trends in Serie A. They're very expressive. Um, but also Lazio, you know, defensively, uh, just abysmal, really. Just four clean sheets all season, only one of which has come away from home, which came at Salernitana, who are rock bottom. They're still without uh, a Cherby, their influential centre-half as well. Um, and yeah, they need a reaction because before the break, they drew nil-nil in the game against Atalanta, where we all expected goals and entertainment but um, obviously after recording the Covid outbreak at Atalanta was much more severe than we first imagined and they went with a decimated squad and Lazio just didn't didn't fire at all but uh, so yeah I'm expecting a reaction from them but ultimately they've conceded 23 goals in 11 away games if you exclude that Salernitana match so um, they've got the offensive threat to, to score against any team in the division so expect them to get on the score sheet too so both bets should in theory land uh, but overs has landed in 34 of these two teams collective 45 games which is 76%. The league average is 60%. Uh, but if the odds were 1.75 to 1.8, you're looking at the, the market saying there's only about a 57% chance of success here. So uh, a bit of a sort of difference between the numbers and uh, certainly what the market is, is suspecting. I, I imagine it's down to a probably overreaction of Vlajevic's departure. But yeah. as I said, they have signed some good players uh, to hopefully fill his boots. Mark, let's stay in Italy because there's the little matter of a Milan derby on Saturday evening. And given the fact that Inter are already four points ahead of the Rossoneri in the title race, a win at San Siro would seriously boost their hopes of retaining the title. This is massive. It is massive. And, and for that reason, the magnitude of this match, I'm kind of going to go against the goals grain in Italy and actually oppose what I think is a, a high goal line here. Um, the goal expectancy of this match, if you look at the spreads, is around 29 uh, and that feels really high considering what's at stake here, uh, considering it's a derby uh, and considering recent derbies have been reasonably tight affairs, um, certainly compared to what the league average tends to be. Only two of the last nine meetings between these two have produced four or more goals. If you look at Inter's record this season against the top six, only two of six league games have gone uh, over three and a half goals. And for Milan, it's two from seven against the same standard of opposition as well. Now, four of those matches featured two goals 
uh, one goal or zero goals, so under two and a half goals. So there's precedent there already. Uh, you can get under three goals at around 1.75, which means if there's exactly three goals, you get your cash back. If there's fewer than three, we win. If there's four or more, we lose. Um, so yeah, as you say, Milan derby, but also the importance of the, the race for the Scudetto. Four points between the pair. Napoli sandwiched in between as well. I think Milan will go here with a, a mentality of, you know, we must not lose this match because we'll be out of the title race. And I think we saw with Inter as well when they went to Atalanta. I know this is a different set of circumstances, particularly playing at San Siro as the home team, but uh, they were much more restrained and controlled in their performance because I think they knew the importance of not losing that match. So, yeah, I don't think it's ever a fun experience opposing goals, particularly in Italy. But I just think <laughs> that the line is a little bit too high here. And um, I think also if you are a bit bolder than I am, you can back both teams to score no at around 6-4, to four, I think, 2.5, which is uh, a really big price for what I think might be a little bit tighter than the market imagines it will be. It's always a bit more unnerving to back something not to happen rather than back something uh, to actually happen. Uh, let's go back to England then and to the FA Cup, as we promised we would. Uh, there's a big game on Saturday night as Spurs face Brighton. Uh, Tottenham strong at home in general under Antonio Conte, as long as they're not playing Chelsea. Uh, Jason, they're the 1.9 favourites here to make it through to the last 16. Obviously, we don't know whether they're going to play Bentancur and Kulusevski, but I guess they could. What do you make of this one? Yeah, I, I think Spurs at that price, I'd, I'd, I'd be cautious about backing them. I think, yeah, that's the side I'd be looking to get with. Um, two Premier League teams meeting in the Cup, you think nice one would be able to use some league performances to kind of gauge what the price should be. <laughs> they actually haven't played since January 2021. The game was postponed earlier this year, so they still have to play it twice in the league. And a lot has happened since 2021 that it's hard to take any valuable information from those match prices. Um, so team news is going to be important, like we touched on. Uh, Potter actually took it seriously in that last round against West Brom. He actually went full strength, but the Brighton price still drifted. So I'm fully expecting to take it seriously. Conte, it's, it's questionable how seriously he takes it. So in the last round, he didn't really have to... He wasn't asked that question because it was at home to Morecambe. Started the Celso, Deli Ali, you know, he, he was fine to, you know, rotate and keep people fresh and still get the job done. Whereas in the League Cup, the first game against Chelsea, he started releasing the goal, which is a statement. They lost 2-0 and then, did he kind of chuck it in then in the second leg? He didn't start Lloris, uh, didn't start Lloris in, in the Cup game against Morecambe. So really what I'm saying is, if he starts Hugo Lloris in this game, he's taking it seriously and therefore I'd yeah. be looking at the 10-11. Whether he starts with Kulisevsky or Bentancur or whether you see Bergwijn um, continue to start or, you know, to anyone, Lucas Moura will be good. Son's a doubt, but um, even factoring in Son not being in the starting 11, if it's a good 11 that he puts out, then Tottenham, I think, at 10-11 is a, is a fair shout uh, for this game. Um, in terms of the cup outrights, what price would you back Spurs at to win the cup? Oh, there's a question. I'm going to hand that one on to Mark and be mean. Go on, Mark. What would you have Spurs as to win the cup? Well, I wouldn't back them below um, below tens. So um, I don't know if that's your answer, but uh, yeah, I've no real interest. I don't bet the cup whatsoever. So you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> right, Jake. Then you can answer, seeing as Mark's not interested at all. <laughs> um, I'd probably take it a few ticks higher than that. I won't back them any any shorter than around 14s. I just think that the gulf between them, City, Chelsea, Liverpool is just too big. And if they did meet at any point in the competition, I would expect them to exit. Yeah. 
that's it. That's wisdom of the crowd. You got two very, very good markers there from from the lads. As in, definitely won't be backing them any less than than tens, and probably side a little bit with Jack's opinion as well. The gap to the top three is is just too big at the moment. So, on the Betfair sportsbook, you could back Spurs at about twelve to one with us. It'd be definitely one of the better prices out there on the sportsbook, and you can back them each way with that. Uh, on the exchange, you can get a slightly better price for them just to win outright. It'll be about fourteen point zero. Um, if you go back to when records began, i.e. when football began, when Premier League football came back in, what, 93, 94, when it all started, we've had 28 cup finals played since then. How many cup finals have Spurs been in? The FA Cup, maybe one at a push. No, I haven't even made a cup final, which is a bit no. sad, really. But uh, It's only the League Cup they've made the final of, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. But the reason I pose that question is, the FA Cup has been dominated by the so-called top six since the Premier League era began. Now, Spurs obviously not carrying their weight in it, but if you look at the top six, if you were to ask the question how many of those 28 Cup finals were won by a top six side? 20? It's like 24 or something ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I'd have gone 24. Yeah, bang on. 24 28. As in, yeah, sounds ridiculous, but that's what it is. So... The advice to punters is like when you're looking at these Premier League teams at the bigger prices that are not in the top six or even like having a punt on a championship team, absolutely, if you support a lower league club, go for it. Like, you know, there's entertainment and there's value in it. But in terms of looking at the betting at the moment for this FA Cup outright, I think the market's a little bit big on City. You'll get a general price of about 11 to 4, which I think is a bit big. But if I was having a bet, I'd have a look at Liverpool 7.8 on the exchange and Chelsea 7.0. Now, Yes, I factored in the fact that they'll have European commitments. Title race, maybe Liverpool might still have have to look at that. But given the squads that both these teams have, like those prices are just too big given the gap to the rest of the Premier League. And the fact they're both in the League Cup final, so there's actually, you know, we, we have formed this season to show that even when they mix it up, they're still good enough to get to the Cup finals with the teams that they're putting out. Now, having said that, I do like... An enjoyable bet, a bit of entertainment, a bit of a punt. So what I would say, if you are looking at a bigger price, Crystal Palace there at about 40 to 1. Reasons being, you know, whether it's Liverpool, Chelsea, they can put it up to them on the day, um, can put it up there for it to anyone else in the league. Plus the fact that they're 90% really to qualify this weekend against Hartlepool. So if they get a nice run in the draw, 40 to 1 each way, you could get a bit of entertainment out of Palace. But really, looking at that record, like, 28 cup finals, 56 finalists. About 37 of the 56 finalists have come out of the top six. Uh, bar Spurs, who again not pulling their weight. So, like, if you're having a look in the outright, have a look at Liverpool and Chelsea and the Betfair Exchange, 7.8, 7.0, or Crystal Palace, 40 to 1 on the Betfair Sportsbook. Have a look each way for a bit of entertainment. Jake, you wanted to have a rare look at the Championship, didn't you? Yeah, just a little dip. Um, Blackpool taking on Bristol City at the weekend. I think the Blackpool look a little bit big at around 2.38 on the exchange. Um, it's a bit of a mid-table clash. Neither really playing for anything in terms of playoffs or looking threatened for relegation. Um, but Blackpool have been very steady um, this season, very steady at, at overall, but particularly at home, winning 7 of 15. Bristol City away from home have been well, pretty much awful. Um, they've lost 6 of the last 8. But process-wise, they've looked just shocking defensively, allowing 1.75 expected goals against per game, conceding two goals per game away from home. Um, they're yet to keep a clean sheet away from home, are Bristol City, which you know adds more fuel to the Blackpool win because when Blackpool do tend to win, they do tend to win in a shutout. So 
expecting Blackpool to score uh, and get over the line for three points. I think the price just looks a little bit too big. Well, now it's time for the world-famous podcast treble, a betting feature that's so popular, you might even be tempted to stop telling people about your Wordle scores for two minutes while you listen to it. How it works is that each of the three guys pick a selection from the weekend's action and lovely traders like Jason wrap them up in a boosted treble. And Jason, I will start with you. Thanks very much, Kev. Um, so I know I've berated the chances of actually winning the cup, but I still think Spurs at slightly odds on is a good one to put in the Betfair treble this weekend. I actually trust Conte plays best 11. They've no European commitments this season. Yes, they have a couple of additional games to make up in the league, but given the squad he has, given the fact he's won the cup before with Chelsea, um, I fully expect Tottenham to give it everything, and therefore I'd be happy to lock them into the Betfair treble and we get a bit of extra value with the boost on Spurs to beat Brighton in 90 minutes. Jake, I've got a feeling you might have a Burnley bet, but we'll see. Let's go to you. Not quite, no. I'm actually going Sunday. Forest versus Leicester. Um, over two and a half goals in that FA Cup game looks... Um, Looks good to me. I'll throw that in there. Um, obviously, we know Leicester are just mad when it comes to goals, and particularly recently, the last eight matches, the games have averaged 4.25 goals per game, which is just ridiculous. Um, we've also seen an uptick in Forest from a goals perspective under Steve Cooper. Um, over two and a half goals in 63% of their last eight matches. Also seen an XG increase from Forest as well, from around 1.1 uh, under Chris Hutton to around 1.6 per game in the Championship under Cooper. So, Two teams that have sort of trended in a really positive direction for goals. So over two and a half looks a good one for me. And we'll have a more detailed look at that game in our Sunday show where Mark O'Hare will do his best to hide his disdain for betting on the FA Cup. Uh, Mark, uh, can you uh, complete the treble for us, please? Yeah, I'll go Sunday as well. Uh, Sampdoria versus Sassuolo in Syria. Both teams to score. Lovely uh, little mix of bets in there. Well, that's all we have time for on this edition of Football Only Better. Please do remember to gamble responsibly. Lots of shows to keep an eye on elsewhere on the Betfair network. We've got NFL Only Better. Of course, Super Bowl is coming up very soon indeed. Cricket Only Better. There's always cricket around the world. And we've got three. Yes, count them. Three racing shows. We've got the Wade In podcast. got Racing Only Better. And we've got the new Cheltenham Rawcast, which is looking ahead to the festival, which is getting ever closer. From Jake, from Jason, from Mark, and from me, it's goodbye for now.